Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. A Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies is an accessible and balanced introduction that helps readers sort out key views on the most important debated issues in New Testament studies. Well-known New Testament scholar Nijay Gupta fairly presents the spectrum of viewpoints on 13 topics and offers reflections on why scholars disagree on these matters. Written to be accessible to students and readers without advanced training in New Testament studies, this book will serve as an excellent supplementary text for New Testament introduction courses. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Nijay Gupta about his new book, A Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies, Understanding Key Debates. Dr. Gupta is Associate Professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary at George Fox University, and starting this fall, he'll be teaching at Northern Seminary. He has written First and Second Thessalonians in the Zondervan Critical Introductions to the New Testament series and is co-editor of the State of New Testament Studies with Scott McKnight. Dr. Gupta, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be with you again. Yeah. I Well, you know the drill. You've done this before. Um, would you mind starting with a short bio of how you became interested in biblical studies, but then maybe take that to what inspired you to write this book? Sure. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, in college, I went to a, a secular college, Miami University of Ohio, and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I was interested in ministry. Um, I wasn't really interested in academics at that point, um, but I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell because I had a passion for just better understanding the Bible, studying biblical studies, and especially learning the languages. And I had a great experience at Gordon-Conwell. I had a chance to TA for Greek and that got me really excited about teaching, and I sort of went down that road. Um, now, that actually is a good lead-in to why I wrote this book, Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies. When I went to seminary, I didn't really know anything about biblical studies in terms of acad- academics. I had read some Bible studies and you know some kind of weirspy kinds of things, but I hadn't really dug into New Testament studies as a discipline until seminary. And I felt like, I don't know if you've ever felt like this, Jonathan, I felt like I was lost. Like people are talking about Mm. all these terms, concepts, old perspective, new perspective, historical Jesus, Schweitzer, Boltzmann, all these people. I had no idea what was going on. I couldn't piece it together. And I wish that I had a guide to help me get oriented to kind of the biggest topics and debates in New Testament studies. When I was in seminary, it was the new perspective on Paul. Now I feel like it's things like Paul and Empire and the New Testament Empire. And, you know, I I just wish that I had a, um, a, a good lay of the land of where to put concepts and people and views, how many views there are, which are the main views and why are they held. So about 10 years ago, I came across a book called Across the Spectrum of Theology. 
And um, this was a systematic theology book that laid out a whole bunch of issues with simple viewpoints, view one, view two, like Calvinism, like predestination and free will, and different views in eschatology, for example. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a New Testament version of that kind of book where you cover, in fact, the background for this book is its original title was Across the Spectrum of New Testament Studies. And we thought it'd be better to call it Beginner's Guide, but it really is that kind of even-handed introduction to the debates for the uninitiated. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that really comes through in this. You you write very concisely. You, you do justice to all the sides. Um, so you begin in chapter one addressing the topic of the synoptic problem. Maybe you could just briefly explain what, what in the world that is and why it's important for biblical studies. Sure. This is one of those debates that people kind of get oriented or, or, or invite uh, um, introduced to pretty much right away when they study the New Testament in a seminary or maybe in a kind of advanced Sunday school course. Uh, and, it, and, it, and this debate and discussion and problem goes back all the way to the early church. This isn't a new thing, but it's really looking at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and recognizing they're similar and they're different. They're similar in the t- kinds of stories they tell, the key terminology they use, um, but they're also different because you'll have material that is unique to the Gospel of Luke, like the famous parable of the prodigal son. You have material that is unique to Matthew, um, and and so forth. And you, you know, the the synoptic problem is really trying to figure out the relationship between these three gospels. How are they similar and how are they different? John is a whole other thing. We'll talk about John later. But how do you account for the fact that you have these three Gospels that share so much and yet they're also different? And scholars for a long time presumed a literary dependence theory, which is basically the idea that in written form, someone is reading something and copying it. Maybe Matthew is copying Mark and adding things. Maybe Luke is copying Q, or Luke is copying Matthew, or Luke is copying Matthew and Mark. You have all these written-oriented theories, which have kind of dominated scholarship for a long, long, long time, hundreds of years. And then more recently, you have a, a, a different approach, kind of interesting, different approach that relates more to oral tradition. When people share traditions about something from their heritage, uh, then they don't always tell the story in the exact same way every time. They might tell the core of the story, the punchline, or the the, the main characters. But there, there's this kind of um, openness or flexibility to some of the other details. You might leave out something, or or you might uh, exaggerate a little bit. And so there's been this other school of thought which has leaned more into a kind of oral tradition which allows for natural or um, spontaneous flexibility that moves us away from a literary dependence. Um, So I really open those two options up and say, okay, maybe it's not either or, maybe it's a both and, but scholars disagree on the degree to which you look at the differences and you see that it's not intentional, but it's maybe just a, I don't want to say accident, but just a, a factor of oral tradition passed on from one group to the next and different communities getting it through different leaders. So that's, that's the basic gist is that you might have a key story that looks a little bit different in each of the three synoptic gospels. And you're trying to figure out why they have some similarities, but also differences. Right. Yeah. So 
in current scholarship right now, I mean, there are so many things being done in this area, but um, here's just an off the cuff question. If you could only take two books with you to like a deserted island to learn about the synoptic problem, what two books would you grab? Oh boy. Okay. Well, um, if they're only books and I can't take my laptop, then I do want like a gospels, um, like synoptic parallel, which is going to show me the differences and similarities. There's a whole bunch of books like this out there that you can buy. That's actually going to, to put it in table form. And so I remember kind of in seminary, that was one of the things seminary students had to have. I don't know, Jonathan, do you have a, one of those synoptic, uh, column parallels? Not in written form. Not in written form. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I use websites and I use you know, like, you know, Bible works and stuff for that kind of thing. But that was kind of like something that you absolutely had to have. So I'd probably have that. I think Throckmorton is the name that's, am I right about that? Um, and then uh, another book, I don't know. Um, this has not been a passion of mine, this particular debate. Yeah. I'm interested in it, but it's not been something that I kind of obsess over. I will say that um, uh, one of the one of the turning points in my own understanding of the Gospels came through Richard Burridge. He's written several things on the Gospels, but in a couple of his books, um, I can't remember the title of it right now, but he he talks about the early Christian tradition, uh, the patristic tradition of looking at the fourfold Gospel using the four angelic creatures of Ezekiel and Revelation. So like one creature had the face of a human, another an ox, another eagle, another lion. And the patristic writers like Augustine were fascinated by this and they tried to correspond those faces with the gospels. Like Mark Mm -hmm. is the lion, Matthew is the human, Luke is the ox, and John is the eagle. And they're they're basically saying they're different on purpose. Their, Their differences are not embarrassments to Christianity. Their differences aren't accidents. They're actual uh, different lenses through which to view the life of Jesus. And I really, and Burridge introduced me to that, even though that's been a, a well-known you know, part of the patristic tradition for a long time. But I really like that to give texture to how we look at the gospels versus when I was in college, I used to be really into apologetics, which was all about defending the Christian faith. I felt like I had to be on the defensive against questions about why the gospels are different. And now I have a different view. I'm more appreciative of the different perspectives of the gospel writers. Mm-hmm. Right. Wait, was that called like four gospels, one Jesus or something? Yes, you got okay. it. Yeah. I think that that's it. He's written more than one book of this kind, but that that's one of the one I was thinking about. Yeah. 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 Great. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Um, in, in chapter two, you then go and lay out the history of the quest for the historical Jesus. Um, yeah, why don't you talk about why this is important? What, why search for Jesus's historicity? Yeah, you know, I'm working with a group of students right now that are work that are going through this book, and um, we just finished talking about this chapter on the quest for historical Jesus. And a lot, uh, I get a lot of the same kinds of responses, which are. On one side, you have people who say um, they're kind of afraid of the quest for historical Jesus because it can seem anti-Christian, it can seem anti-faith, because the quest for historical Jesus is basically saying there was this real human, this real person named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and either the Gospels tell us the historical truth about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or it doesn't. 
And if it doesn't, then we need to find that truth. And maybe we find that through uh, looking at the Gospel of Thomas or through looking at Josephus or looking at through some of the Roman writers that talked about Jesus or uh, looking beyond the Gospels to what what kind of sources they had that they manipulated if, if people believe that the Gospels are not telling the truth about Jesus. So some people don't want to be involved with that quest at all as if it's a if it's a by fact anti-christian thing to do um other people want to say okay really what this quest is doing is trying to help us piece together what the flesh and blood jesus would have acted like the traditions and rituals that he would have been involved in kind of building this real 3d world around him so you have people like craig keener who are really invested in that. And so, you know, it's this, it's become this amoeba and it's hard to sum, sum up the historical Jesus quest because it's gone through so many iterations. There's so many people involved in this, but it's basically this, uh, uh, trying to get at what this, who this Jesus really was. Some people take the gospel seriously in that. Some people don't. Right. So in your, estimation do you think that since it has this whole quest has gone through so many different changes and uh has taken on different forms would you still use the terminology the quest for the historical jesus you know yeah jonathan that's a tough question because um i'm really actually fascinated by the conversation even though i trust the gospels to you know and maybe this is the right time to talk about genre um that's been a big part of this discussion about how to read the gospels. Um, the genre question really asks, are the gospels trying to be historical? To what degree did the gospel writers feel like they could be taken to account, you know, taken to trial or whatever on trying to be historical? Luke obviously cares about eyewitnesses. Is that the same for Matthew? Is that same for Mark? Um, I think that it's best to leave leave these discussions with the same terminology to show that continuity of scholarship. At the same time, you know, people like Scott McKnight who are saying, I used to be heavily involved in the quest for historical Jesus. Now I feel like it's a complete dead end. You have Dale Allison saying something similar. You have a whole variety of quote unquote Jesus scholars who are saying the way we used to do this was completely wrong. You have a whole Mm. nother group of scholars that are basically saying, um, you know, if we only focus on contextualizing Jesus, then it's worth it. And then you have other scholars that are continuing that kind of um, anti-Christian approach to the quest. So, I, yeah, I, I think let it leave it alone, allow it to continue on. It's going through a whole new phase. Instead of looking at the minutia of is this phrase spoken by the historical Jesus? Is this phrase? We're kind of beyond that. I don't think we'll go back to that again. We're now more into looking at kind of the big picture. Okay, what are the key points that we can all agree on? Yes, he was a human at this time, had disciples, died on a cross, things like that. I think as as we continue to fill that out with things like archaeology, social science, um, I think we are are seeing fruit from some of that. And I think it's I'm reading um, a book right now on. Um, Mark as the first kind of Christian biography by Helen Bond. It's an Urban's book, just came out. And she kind of as a participant of this Jesus scholarship, Helen Bond, and she does actually a fantastic job. She doesn't go into huge speculation 
at the same time, she's not kind of trying to apologetically defend Christianity. She's just a really level-headed, sensible scholar offering really good cutting-edge scholarship. And that's the kind of stuff I enjoy reading. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So then speaking of genre and historical claims, all these things, uh, what do you think about the book of John and his gospel, which you cover in chapter three? Right. Um, You know, this has been a really interesting development in scholarship over the last 30 years. In in this book, I talk about going to a Wheaton conference, um, a Wheaton theology conference in honor of N.T. Wright. And one of the most famous books that N.T. Wright has written is called Jesus and the Victory of God, where he's basically doing his study of historical Jesus, which has become pretty, pretty famous. Have you read Jesus and Victory of God, Jonathan? I'm putting you on the spot here. Yeah, not in its entirety, okay. I'm ashamed to say. I don't know if I've re- read any of his 700 plus pages you know, of books, book, <laughs> books of that length in, in their entirety. So I don't blame you, but um, I, I did enjoy it. But what's interesting is when, he, you know, Wright talks about when he first wrote that in the nineties, I think uh, he did not include the gospel of John in the discussion of the historical Jesus. And at this conference, I went to one scholar, a Johannine scholar, Mary my Thompson, she actually took him to task on that and said, why did you leave this out? And Wright's answer was really fascinating. He said, um, at that time in the phase of Jesus scholarship, if he would have included the Gospel of John, then the critics of his work and the critics of kind of more confessional Jesus scholarship, they would have just dismissed the book out of hand. They wouldn't have even read it. And so he felt like he had to kind of play their game in some ways to get a, to get a voice, to get a hearing. I think that's actually true that, that he kind of was, that was his best option at that time. But then Wright said, if he were to do it again now, or if he were to create another version of that book, he would he would include John because Johannine scholarship has gone through a new phase where there's been more attention to the historicity of John, uh, you know, John's, you know, geographic uh, information or some aspects of John, like Jesus going up to Jerusalem periodically for festivals, which is very likely um, of the historical Jesus. So, uh, so John has become a really interesting conversation point now, kind of, it used to be kind of a marginalized gospel as one that kind of is mythical or overly spiritualized. And now there's a little bit more of a balancing act there with scholarship. So what I do in the, in the chapter very simply is to say, some people want to say John is myth and some people want to say John is historical. And I just really talk, talk that through and genre plays an important part of that because what an author sets out to do is really going to guide what they write. And and so I kind of talk through that discussion. Gotcha. Yeah. So would you personally put John in the same genre as the synoptics? Um, probably not. Um, I think by the time John's written, which is, you know, later in the first century, you have all these other gospels out there, synoptic gospels, but there may have been others. And John, pretty transparently is trying to do something different, not contradicting the other gospels, but definitely uh, I've been learning from my colleague, Paul Anderson, uh, who's a Johannine expert. And and he talks about a bioptic perspective, which means you have the perspective of the synoptic gospels. And John's trying to offer another perspective on Jesus, not to not to cancel out that other perspective, but to really add richness to it. Um, and, and I agree with that. I think John is doing something different. I talk about in that chapter genre bending and I get this from 
the scholar Harold Attridge. And I think John is taking a basic biography approach, but he's really bending it and really is trying to um, offer more theological um, uh, dimensions to the story of Jesus. So, you know, there's a great book um, called Reading the Gospels Wisely, I think is what it's called by Jonathan Pennington. Are you familiar with yeah. that book? Yeah. yeah and he I talks about, book. yeah, it's a great book. And he, and Pennington talks about um, the Gospels as Bios Plus. Uh, so they're, they're biographies and more. And I would say John is Bios plus, plus, plus. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's gospels and more and more and more. So I think definitely starting from that same foundation of wanting to tell the story of Jesus, but then is adding a, a rich kind of uh, theology, uh, theological lens to it. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate you responding to that. So uh, you know, as we talk about the Gospels and uh, as they record the life of Jesus and other things, we then turn in chapter four to a comparison that you put Jesus and Paul side by side. And for maybe for our listeners who don't know, um, maybe just explain like why even do a comparison? What's at odds? Why why go about this? Yeah, well, you know, it's in order to get at that question, you have to go back to a kind of skeptical scholarship that basically has said that you have this pure religious message of Jesus of the kingdom of God and of um, the renewal of Israel and things like that. And then there's this view that Paul comes along and basically shreds and manipulates and destroys Jesus's religion and creates another religion. Uh, a religion that's maybe pagan or Hellenistic influenced because Paul was a child of the diaspora. Um, and, and it kind of takes on this Pauline character uh, over and against the historical Jesus. That, that's kind of a plot line we see developed, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago in scholarship. And, um, and, and, and even though scholars of the early 20th century didn't, necessarily think that way, there was still this kind of atmosphere that Paul rejected or or maybe didn't identify with the theology or message that Jesus originally brought. And so just a, a basic example is Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then in Paul, you have almost no interest in the language of the kingdom of God. You have a few kind of references here and there, like idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you don't have Paul go on and on and on about the kingdom of God. And why is that? Um, so you have this one view of Paul uh, rejecting Jesus um, or maybe going beyond Jesus and and kind of taking the, the kind of core of what Jesus did, but then just kind of taking it another direction. Now that has been over the years challenged or um, maybe lessened by scholars who want to try to find ways to bring Paul and Jesus into more coherence rather than contrast. And so David Wenham is probably one of those people that maybe the most vocal advocate of a more unified Paul and Jesus. And so he would be representative of approach I call Paul following after Jesus rather than beyond Jesus, where this may be more of a natural development rather than Paul intentionally subverting Jesus as the founder of Christianity. 
this is a huge discussion because you have churches, Jonathan, where the focus of the church is on the Gospels, like maybe Matthew or John. And then you have churches where the focus is more on Paul. The theological anchor is more in Romans or Galatians. And if you are going to see Jesus and Paul as so very different, then you're going to have a kind of lopsided uh, gospel. And uh, But if you see them as more unified, then maybe you're going to be able to have a more shared foundation between them. And you don't have to kind of choose. So I think this is one of the most important debates in New Testament studies. Um, unfortunately, as you probably know, Scholars are kind of hermetically sealed into their discipline. So I'm a Pauline scholar. I do Pauline stuff. And then I have gospels friends who are gospel scholars. And I'm really wanting to see there be more cross-pollination. And we are seeing that in people like Mike Bird and Craig Keener and people who are going back and forth, Scott McKnight. Um, but I think there needs to be even more of that. And the more we can see Jesus and Paul together somehow, the more I think there'll be there'll be that in scholarship and in churches. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, in terms of like, historically, how Paul's writings and the writings in the Gospels kind of correlate, would you would you personally say that that Paul was aware of, of certain written dr- Jesus traditions, or like that, the Gospels were written, maybe with, with knowledge of what Paul had written? Like, how would you kind of approach that? Yeah, that is that is such a hard question because it involves so much speculation. So, you know, as you know, Jonathan, but maybe some of your listeners don't, um, even though when we think of a chronological timeline, we put Paul after Jesus, which is true. In terms of the New Testament writings, Paul's letters were written before the Gospels. At least the majority of Paul's early letters were written before the Gospels were, you know, kind of distributed. And so that means that in some ways, Paul testifies earlier to the life of Jesus and the Jesus tradition than the Gospels, which is, which is, you know, everybody knows, but it's, it's, we have to take that into account as we're talking about why Paul doesn't quote Jesus all the time. Um, Now, your question was, you know, about Paul referencing Jesus sayings, his knowledge of Jesus sayings. You know, if you remember in Galatians, Paul talks about going to Peter, spending time with him and listening to him. Almost certainly he's getting the teaching of Jesus in some form and some quantity in that time. Otherwise, what else is he doing there? Um, I think the bigger issue is if, if we revere the words of Jesus today so much, why aren't we seeing all of these quotations of Jesus sayings in Paul's letters. Certainly he would have known that kind of stuff. Um, I don't actually have a good answer for that. I mean, an old answer is Paul's focus was on the Christ event. And that does seem to be true. Um, Another answer is he would have already done all that Jesus quoting when he was with those churches like Philippi or Thessalonica. I think that's only a half um, reassuring answer because you know, I think about um, people like F.F. F. Bruce, uh, these scholars who just loved Scripture so much, they can't help but quote the words of Jesus all of the time. So the 
the, why isn't Jesus, why isn't Paul doing that? Why isn't he just quoting Jesus all the time? Um, I actually don't know. And maybe he is, and we don't know it. He's echoing Jesus's words that we don't have access to. But why is he not quoting from the Sermon on the Mount more? And, you know, some of these texts that are so famous, we don't know. I mean, we just have to take into consideration he was writing at a time before all this stuff, you know, became put into, you know, multi-chapter gospels. Um, so we, we just have to be mindful of that. But I, I, I still think we're kind of scratching our heads at that. Right. Yeah. I just want to see what, what your take was on that. Sorry to throw you a hard one, but, um, no, so I, I talk about that in the chapter and it, it is, it is, I think in some ways irresolvable, it, it should be discussed, but, uh, you know, I, I would kind of hope that as much as he quotes the old Testament, he, Paul quotes the old Testament, he would also quote the words of Jesus. Maybe he is, maybe we don't know it. And he is, I don't know. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, let's stay on Paul for just a little bit more. Um, you cover in chapters five and six what's called the new perspective on Paul and Paul's relationship to Jewish law. Um, is there anything you kind of want to touch on there? Um, you know, I think right now I'm working on a commentary in Galatians, and one of the most important things you can do when you study Paul is try to figure out and and look at his understanding of Torah and his relationship to Torah first, you know, as a Jew, but then also, you know, as a Christ follower. Um, and it's just so challenging when you read Galatians, for example, to figure out why he says things like Christ redeemed us from the cursed, having become a curse for us, as is written, curses anyone who hangs on a tree. Just a simple issue like that, one verse in Galatians opens up such a huge can of worms. Is it God's word, Torah, that's cursing the Messiah? And why? And then why does he quote that particular passage? And why is he quoting that in relationship to crucifixion when the, the Deuteronomy passage he's quoting isn't actually about crucifixion? I mean, it opens up all these questions. I think one of the biggest issues that comes out of it is um, being mindful of a tradition, uh, a Western tradition, especially of uh, anti-Semitism, and and uh, in our scholarship, and that we might have a immediate reaction of kind of blaming Jews, blaming the law. But we have to be really careful about that because Paul still treats Torah as revelatory scripture, and we have to see the God of the New Testament is also the God of the Old Testament. So. One of the things that I really want to communicate through that chapter is um, there are approaches and solutions that don't involve um, just saying Old Testament is bad, New Testament is good, Torah was this horrible thing, thank goodness we're rid of that. I think um, I was kind of brought up with those kinds of assumptions about the Old Testament, about especially about the law. And we need to move, I think we need to move away from that. I don't explicitly say in that chapter, but I offer some other ways of looking at it that are going to, I think, give a healthier perspective on the oneness of scripture. And I can attest that I think you do a great job doing that. Um, it's, yeah, it's a very helpful discussion. Um, so we can now turn to the book of Revelation. 
you lay out four approaches to its interpretation, the preterist, historicist, futurist, and idealist. Um, yeah, I'll just let you kind of take this. Like, w- what would you like to say about the book of Revelation? Just kind of give an overview and a summary of what people need to know. Yeah, well, you know, Revelation is one of those books where when I was growing up, um, you either had people who never read it, they just thought it was too weird, or you had people that were overly obsessed with eschatological timelines. So I remember in the church that I was a part of in high school, there was a pastor who was obsessed with end, end times. And I remember he taught this Sunday school and he had like a timeline that went around the whole room on like chalkboard. And it was really intricate with, you know, events and months and days and all kinds of stuff. And I remember I was one of those people that just didn't care. I just thought that was so just this weird hobby horse. Um, And then you had the left behind stuff. And that was a huge phenomenon, and it led people to read Revelation. You had Harold Camping with his prediction of the end of the world. And um, throughout all that, I just felt like Revelation had nothing useful for Christians today, except this obsession with the mark of the beast or the Antichrist, things like that. And it was just really for these doomsday people, doomsday Christians. Um, And then I came across... uh, more recent scholarship in Revelation that is more theological in the sense that it's teaching the Revelation is not so much teaching about a timeline as much as teaching good biblical theology about who God is, uh, who we are, how God wants to redeem this world, who the enemy is, which is sin, death, evil, and so forth. And that kind of refreshed the study of Revelation for me, and now it's become one of my favorite books. I, I try to dig into Revelation scholarship whenever I can. I don't know your own experience with Jonathan. Do you have you? Where are you at with your experience with Revelation right now? Yeah, not much. I mean, even after doing a seminar on Johannine theology and obviously the debates on if it's the same John as authorship, we, we did not cover Revelation much at all. <laughs> so is it something you're interested to. in? It absolutely is, yeah. Yeah, and I, I love uh, Richard Bauckham's work and and others. Um, just his kind of overview of its theology. Have you read um, Mike Gorman's reading Revelation responsibly? I have not. That was one of those books. It's a short book, maybe a hundred, hundred and hundred fifty pages, uh, maybe a little bit longer. I can't remember, but it's one of those short books that is so theologically dynamic, and it's again not a, the, you know, the the the, the futurist view, which is kind of the, the the dominant dispensational kind of view is that revelation is kind of charting these literal eras of of history going into the future and um it almost seems like then revelation is this map this time map and a map is only useful when you need to go to those places and and therefore i had this message in my head that revelation was only helpful you know you know kind of access when needed you know, break glass when needed. And and I just don't need it. But um, Gorman really opened up kind of this um, idealist uh, approach, which is more theological that says, you know, the purpose of Revelation isn't to map out the timeline of the end. It's more to teach you about God and teach you about uh, the gospel. And, you know, that's one of the views I talk about in there. And it's, it's the view that resonates the most with me. Um, 
And I just found it just it just really lit in me a passion for what Revelation has to offer, especially to a suffering people of God uh, who are called to resilience and faith and uh, virtue and righteousness uh, in the face of opposition and hostility and things like that. And so, um, so the, the different views, you know, some are more historical, timeline oriented, uh, some are more theological. Um, I think it's just helpful for people to know, first and foremost, that that kind of era-driven view is is not the only view out there. Um, there are right. other views, and that with any book of the Bible, um, it's not about predicting the future. It's really about growing in our faith now. And that's true for Revelation. It's true for any book in the Bible. And that that's I hope that students, when they read this book, get that out of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I personally need to dig into it more. Um, It's interesting. I just finished kind of tracking through the Gospel of John's theme of temple. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to kind of go into Ezekiel a little bit in in chapters 40 through 48. And I think that's potentially linked to the absence of the temple in, in Revelation and kind of this theme of God's presence now fully being with his people and all these things. So I, I'm... Yeah, really interested to keep going. I, I, yeah, this reminds me of Greg Beal. He's done some really good work on temple and church. I don't know if you've come across. I think it was one of those new studies in biblical theology. Yeah, books. it's on, it's on my nightstand right now. Yeah, <laughs> the church and the temple's mission. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I think that was one of those kind of tent peg books for me of really connecting temple and church more. Um, thoroughly throughout scripture. And, and obviously he's a, a very famous scholar of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you for that. It's not an easy thing to uh, <laughs> summarize such a, a interesting and um, widely talked about book. So then you move in chapter eight to tackling the topic of pseudonym- pseudonymity and you um, cover the letters of the New Testament. So, in, in your judgment, what are kind of the important things to say when it comes to the authorship of of the New Testament letters? Yeah, this this I feel like is one of these perennial conversations that happens in New Testament studies. I think it's really important. Some people want to dismiss this. So just to give uh, listeners uh, a basic idea of what this is, um, you have these letters, especially of Paul, but you also have letters of Peter and, and, and James and John. And, and the question is, um, you know, c- could some of these letters actually have been written by people other than the named authors? So, for example, Ephesians. Could it be that someone else wrote Ephesians? And, you know, you might ask then, why would you guess that if, if Paul's name is on it? Um, well, let's say that they're, you know, sometimes you might, my wife actually just got an a email claiming to be her boss from a spammer. And, uh, that person said, Hey, can you buy these gift cards and take a picture, you know, scratch off the code and send me a picture. You know, this person is pretending to be her boss and trying to, uh, persuade her towards something. And how did my wife know that that wasn't her boss? Well, the way that this person was talking and some of the things they said made her suspicious. And then as she engaged more, she kind of figured it out. And this kind of thing happened in the ancient world. You would have people that, you know, potentially that would write in the name of someone else. 
and they're trying to use their authority or manipulate or whatever. Um, and so, you know, I, I talk about one view of authorship, which is basically forgery that some people are claiming to be Paul or Peter, and they actually aren't. And they're trying to kind of pull a fast one. They want to convince someone theologically of something and they have an agenda there. Now that's been, that view has been around for a long time, but uh, there's other views, which, you know, for example, that someone might write in someone else's name in the ancient world, but they're not really trying to pull the wool over your eyes. They're really trying, you know, that, that figure is dead and they're trying to, um, it's kind of an homage to them to write in their name. You're kind of part of that school of thought. And it, it was, you know, what we think of as a transparent fiction in the sense that you knew it wasn't this person. You, you knew it wasn't Paul actually writing to you. It was someone else. But it's written in the spirit of the Pauline school or that school of thought. And therefore, it's received as such. So there's been these questions. Is it, you know, are some of these letters that are questioned by scholarship like Ephesians, Colossians, or like the pastoral epistles, or Second Peter, uh, are these written by those apostles? Are they written by a forger, or are they written by kind of a disciple? And some people want to say, oh, it's no big deal, who cares, it's scripture, scripture. But Christians really have a vested interest in um, caring about the ethics of where this material comes from. And certainly the people receiving these letters originally thought these were the apostles. Um, at least I assume that's what they're thinking. So um, it's actually a bigger debate than I think some people make it today. I think it's it's actually a cornerstone New Testament studies debate that will continue on. There have been waves, and I think what we're seeing now, I remember N.T. Wright um, in his big book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, basically saying... Um, we need to rethink this whole discussion because we've gotten bogged down into only a limited number of letters of Paul that we can look at to study Paul, the the so-called undisputed letters. And then we kind of brush to the side anything that's kind of questionable, like the pastoral epistles. And um, I remember I remember Wright saying, we need to take the chess pieces off the board and start over again. Hmm. And I think we're in a phase kind of like that where we're rethinking these things because kind of the, you know, assured results of scholarship have failed us and we're coming at this in all new ways. And I, and I think that's really beneficial. Uh, Jonathan, I'm sure you're aware that a big factor in a lot of this is the amanuensis or letter secretary. Paul often, maybe always used uh, a scribe or uh, a professional secretary. And don't think of like a woman in, in business closing an office. It would be a professional writer, almost like a ghost writer in some ways, uh, would use a professional writer and would partner with them. And, and writing wasn't just like saying an email, it was this really elegant professional thing. And so Paul often partnered with one. In fact, in Romans, we know that the, the scribe's name, the secretary's name is Tertius because he comes out and says, hi, I'm the, I'm the scribe, I'm the secretary. But we don't know what role they played and how much control they had over wording and maybe even some of the ideas involved. Um, th there's there's possibility for there to be a lot of involvement of an amanuensis, and then at sometimes maybe almost no involvement, just more of dictation. So that's a key factor in this debate. But I actually think it's a a, a pretty important subject. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you. That that, that was helpful. Um, so speaking of history of the New Testament and what we can glean, uh, can you? 
then kind of address the New Testament's relationship to the Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that That is one of these chapters in this book that I felt like was going to be most helpful to students now because a lot of this material is just not found in other books. Um, even even introductions to the New Testament don't really lay this out in sort of a multi-view kind of way. And so it was kind of funny when when I was working on this book, I was kind of making up views as I went along because this is such a new discussion. There aren't these very clear dividing lines between views. Do I have three views? Do I have two views? Do I have five views? With things like historical Jesus, it's been going on such a long time that you can kind of draw these lines. Even if you add some more views, you have kind of long-standing views. And with this particular one on the, the Roman Empire and, and early Christians, um, it's, it's it was really tough to figure out what to say here. So I really divided it into two views. Uh, one view, which kind of became prominent in the 1990s, was the New Testament writers were just diametrically op- opposed to the power and ideology and religion of the Roman Empire. And so you you know, you have scholars who seem to be looking under every rock in the New Testament for anti-imperial critique, rhetoric, sentiment, theology, you name it. And what ends up happening in scholarship, I'm sure, I'm sure you've come across this, Jonathan, is that you have these pendulums. And so this pendulum in the 1990s was um, empire is bad, empire is destructive, it's colonialist. And so the New Testament, these early Christians, these intrepid, uh, you know, early Christians were were anti-empire and therefore it must be everywhere. And then what you end up seeing is that pendulum moving because you have this view maybe before that, that, you know, the book of Acts, for example, you have a new, you have an early church that's very accommodating to the world around it saying, okay, we're not making any trouble. We're not making any waves or the famous one is the gospel of John, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, uh, which some have taken to mean, I'm not going to bother you. I'm doing a spiritual thing. It's just a Bible study. Don't worry about me. Um, and then you have this, you know, anti-imperial, you know, or empire studies kind of world coming that's saying, no, 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 Jesus, Paul, early apostles, church, they were all anti-imperial. And now, especially in the last five, 10 years, we see a kind of pendulum moving back towards the middle. So a second view would be there it be more messy. It's kind of a mixture. And so you have texts that are more directly anti-imperial, like the book of Revelation, even though there's some scholarship to say that's not its main focus. Um, but then you have other texts that may be more complex, more of a mix. And I feel like, um, for example, Kevin Rowe's book, World Upside Down, he tries to navigate a path that says, yes, there's plenty of critique in there, but that's not the main that's not the main thing going on. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to lay out that almost in that timeline that that there is this big kind of blast of critique and scholarship for about 15, 20 years. And then now we see this kind of cooling and, and readers can decide who's right. But but we are seeing that kind of we're, we're moving away from a, a one one dimensional uh, anti-imperial uh, New Testament view. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but if you were to be asked <laughs> where you think you, you fall on that, I kind of noticed that your opinion is, uh, is absent, especially in this chapter. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, I, I, you know, I, 
I, I had the benefit or, or maybe uh, difficulty of studying with both N.T. Wright and John Barclay at Durham uh, University for my PhD. I didn't study directly with N.T. Wright. He was a bishop, not a professor, but he was a huge influence on me during my PhD studies. And uh, he was well known for drawing out imperial critique uh, in in Paul, especially, uh, and to some degree in, in, in the Gospels. Um, and then John Barclay, I don't know if you ever read that or heard about it, but there was this famous showdown at SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, mm-hmm. between N.T. Wright and John Barclay on Paul and Empire, basically. And you know, Wright comes out and does his kind of stuff on this. And it's p- very familiar to people because he's written, published a lot on it. And then Barclay kind of voices this strong rebuke, uh, basically saying, using the imagery of the emperor has no clothes, that there's no real evidence for anti-imperial critique in Paul. There's just sort of conjecture. And um, it, it was it just none of us were prepared for what Barclay said that day. And we all left feeling like he just annihilated the opposition. And that was, I think, a big turning point in the study of empire and New Testament studies. And I think Barclay won a huge victory and and really set people to look at the material all over again. So all that being said, um, I I probably would, um, I, I don't know. I remember, I remember John Barclay, uh, he was asked once in a seminar, does he believe that Paul wrote Colossians? And he said, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I think Paul wrote Colossians on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. I think he didn't, and I take Sunday off. And <laughs> I feel that similar way about this kind of issue of imperial criticism. Whenever I read Wright and I read, you know, some of that scholarship, it it he draws out things that just seem so convincing, like the fact that Jews were so passionate uh, in their hopes of overthrowing Rome and overthrowing their yoke of of power. And you have Masada, and you have you know the Dead Sea Scroll community, you know you had all these signs that saw salvation in the gospel as overthrowing the enemy, and a literal physical enemy. And then and then Barclay does his thing and says, "No, look at the text. What do you actually see?" And you see that Paul doesn't name the Roman emperor ever. Um, he doesn't go, you know, use these coded symbols that he reveals like, and Babylon is Rome, you know, he doesn't do that kind of thing. And so, you know, it it is hard to point to things and say, okay, because he used the word savior, this must be a parody of Caesar because he uses son of God. This must be a parody of Caesar, Mm -hmm. um, because he uses Lord. I mean, these were very general terms. And so, um, I think at first I was really entranced with that. I think I'm probably in a Barclay kind of place with with some sympathies for Wright. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for, <laughs> for giving your scoop. Yeah. Let's see, what day is it? I can tell you what my view is on yeah, Thursday. Yeah, well, it's Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Thursday is, I'm taking Thursday off. Yeah, okay. Uh, so then, then in chapter 10, you focus on women in leadership in the New Testament. Um, yeah, what are, what are some key issues surrounding this topic and what do you do with the textual data? Sure. Yeah. Um, this is a, a really important discussion. I remember someone asking me after the book was published, why do you have this chapter in here? It's not really 
a beginner's issue. It's not, I think he meant to say it's, it's not one of the big 13, you know, I have 13 chapters in here. Why did this make the list? And, um, I think the main reason is it's a passion of mine. It's a, it's a area that I spent years studying in seminary. And even now I, I study in depth and it's such a, a crucial subject for the church, whatever view you have. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you have people that say, oh, I haven't really studied it. And I would say, gosh, if you study anything in seminary, this definitely should make the list because we're talking about humans. You're talking about the church. We're talking about the experience and interaction of men and women in the church, in the world, in scripture. So first off to say, it's just such a important subject, you know, even if, you know, you don't take one particular side or the other. Uh, second thing to say is I went through a big change myself in this study in seminary, and um, I wanted to kind of get people to start stud- studying it so that they start that journey. When I went to seminary, Jonathan, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I was a uh, very conservative, kind of reformed kind of th- theology person. Mm. My hero was John Piper. I drove like 16 hours uh, each way to listen to Piper speak at chapel at Dallas Seminary. I drove from Cincinnati, Ohio to Dallas to to hear him speak at chapel there. And um, and I was also visiting Dallas Seminary as a prospective student. But um, I just had you know this view that whatever he said about the subject was right, and I hadn't really studied it. And then I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell where there are different views on this issue. And some people, some faculty have one view and some faculty have another. But I was first introduced to evangelical egalitarians, this idea that you could be conservative in your theology of scripture and also believe that women could be pastors or women could be leaders, ministry leaders in the church, women could be preachers. And I'd never run into that before that. And um, so I spent two or three years studying in depth, reading everything I could possibly find. And I was just amazed at some conservative scholars like Gordon Fee, Ben Witherington, Craig Keener, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who supported women in ministry. And I just had to scratch my head and try to think, how could they come to those conclusions when there are all these very clear scripture texts? So it set me to study this and try to discern. And what I realized after, and I did a major paper on this, a systematic theology paper on this, uh, like a 30-page paper on it. And I, over and over again, as I studied, I realized the issue is not as black and white and simplistic as I had once thought. I thought I was either mm. read and obey scripture or, you know, di- you know, reject scripture. Those are your options. And as I really dug in and I studied the Greek and I, and I got into it in more detail, looked at kind of the fuller picture, I realized, gosh, this is really complicated. And, and, um, and there's so many pieces of the puzzle. There are cultural pieces. There are Old and New Testament pieces. There are Galatians 3 pieces. There are Genesis pieces. I mean, there's so many pieces to it. Then there's practical outworking issues. And there's, you know, what is an elder? What is a pastor? I mean, there's a thousand different dimensions of this discussion, but I think it's so important. I felt like it needed to be included in this book. And at the very least, what I wanted was all readers to have respect and charity for both views because it is one of the more complex debates in the book. 
Yes. Yeah. And especially in Western American culture today, I think that it's, uh, it can be one of those debates that brings out the worst in the way we debate and the way we talk about camps we agree or disagree with. And so I just, I want to say, I appreciate the way that you characterized and talked about both groups. And I think people will be very helped by reading this chapter. Yeah, I I will say, you know, this is a kind of confession time. This was the hardest chapter for me to be objective. (laughs) So if you Mm. felt like it was a stretch for me, because it it was, and I, I had to send this chapter out to some people to make sure that I was being fair to both sides. Cause, cause among the chapters, that was the one that was the hardest for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, so then, you know, as we conclude with the last chapters in this book, you, um, you tackle the new perspective on Paul in chapter 11. Um, and then in chapters 12 and 13, you cover the old Testament and the new Testament how the authors, um, you know, use Jewish scripture and then the application and use of scripture. So I know we've kind of touched on new perspective already a little bit. Um, would you want to just kind of walk through the new Testament's use of the old and, and, uh, maybe, yeah, the application use of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the old and the new, um, you know, this is, this is one of the chapters that, I just didn't know how to divide up the views because the the lines aren't really clear. But the the approach that I took in that chapter was basically there's so many elements of this debate too. Um, it's really asking the question, what what method are the apostles using when they when they use scripture, Old Testament scripture? What what, what exactly are they do they think they're doing? And what people often notice when they're reading the New Testament is the New Testament will quote Old Testament texts that are seemingly kind of random, like they seem to be taken out of context. Um, so, for example, like when they don't break the legs of Jesus, and and it says like his legs were not, you know, the, the legs were not broken. I can't remember if they quote a psalm or what, but, um, you know that Old Testament text is not really about that. Or or I mentioned earlier in our conversation, Jonathan, that when Paul quotes from Deuteronomy saying that curses anyone who hangs on a tree, it's not about crucifixion and it's not about being cursed by crucifixion. It's more uh, about not leaving it to kind of a dead body out to kind of pollute the land. So the, the main debate is, is Paul respecting the Old Testament context when he is quoting or when any New Testament writers coin the Old Testament, are they do they have in mind the Old Testament context? Are they respecting it? Or are they using that scripture in new ways that that original author would have not uh, validated, let's say, or understood? Um, so one view is the New Testament writer is, is um, finding a new meaning in that Old Testament text that, that wasn't transparently there before. And then another view is no, no, no. They they were trying to respect that Old Testament context, and 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 they were trying to be respectful and mindful of what that original author was trying to convey. And um, again, this is one of those issues where it's really hard to decide because you don't want to say they're just kind of proof texting, sprinkling random things in there as they see fit. Give Paul, give you know, give Matthew cr- more credit than that. 
at the same time, when you read these quotations, some of them, some of them seem very sensible. You know, don't, don't muzzle an ox, you know, that's a good use of the old Testament, right? Or many people in Israel died and because they were disobedient, don't be like them. They died in the wilderness, you know, okay, that's a great warning. Then there there are some texts that they're pulled into these, these new Testament texts that don't really seem to fit. And, um, all I can say to that is, as I'm studying Galatians right now, there seems to be more going on in the conversation that Paul's having with the Galatians. So you have this third party, these rival teachers from Jerusalem. And many scholars view that Paul's selecting specifically these texts from Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Genesis um, because they were in Torah and perhaps even those same texts were ones used by his rivals. And he's reinterpreting them in different ways in order to kind of get the Galatians to rethink about the story of Jesus. And so maybe there are factors beyond just looking at the text and looking at the Old Testament and comparing that come into play as we try to figure that out. But this is one of those where reading this chapter is not going to solve it for you. Uh, Reading my book is not going to solve it, but at least put some... um, put some lines on the ground like for to show you where the road is so you can kind of get a feel for it as you start actually reading scholarship. And I should also mention that this is kind of obvious when you open up the book, but at the end of every chapter, I give some guidance for further readings. So I give different kinds of guidance. I give beginner's guidance if you want simpler reading, to kind of, but of book length form. I offer some of that. And then I also offer advanced readings where, okay, if you're like, I got it, give me the heavy stuff. I give you some kind of more academic scholarship that's going to get you into more of the of the specific details. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So with all those things com- combined, like you have really provided such a helpful resource in overviewing and providing um, fair and charitable, um, you know, acknowledgements of all the different sides and with giving more resources to, you know, for further study. I just think this is uh, an incredibly helpful work that all our listeners should go and buy. And so we want to thank Dr. Gupta for taking time with us today and and for doing this interview. We're, um, yeah, we're so grateful for works like this that help us understand and continue our knowledge of the Bible. So thank you. And For our listeners out there, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Until next time, take up and read.